0: What's up, everybody? On today's Demo Day episode, we'll be interviewing Paul Burkalt, co-founder of Amplify.
1: One of the things that I've learned in venture is to do a better job of trusting my gut, which is that indecipherables kind of thing. where You can't really put a, oh, it's this or it's that. But I look back at my 40 angel investments and the ones that have gone awry are almost in every single case ones where I had a feeling like I really shouldn't make this investment.
0: Amplify is a pre-seed venture fund dedicated to making early investments in B2B, SaaS, FinTech, and logistics and supply chain startups. Some of their notable investments include Clutter, HelloTech, TapCart, Wink, and many, many more. On today's show, we'll be discussing top advice on growing a startup, the importance of learning from other companies' mistakes, and the value in trusting your gut as a venture capitalist. Without further ado, let's get into Demo Day. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today on Demo Day. Happy to be here. Thanks, Sean. You're so welcome. So. Uh you know, for those of you that don't know, Paul is the co-founder and managing partner at Amplify LA, uh, as well as a venture partner at Graycroft. You've been a founder, a VC, angel investor, professor, longtime advisor for la uh, LA's Mayor's Advisory Council. You've got a lot going on here. Um, I thought that we would start this episode by just covering a couple topics and then sort of like let the conversation flow from there. Um, first one being around early life and just like the overall media landscape that you saw as an entrepreneur, um, transferring into like the VC world and then sort of what you're excited about in the future and what what you're passionate about. And so um, I thought that we could just start by going way back to where you grew up. Uh, I saw that you were in, I believe it was Sault Ste. Marie. Got the, good, good, got the pronunciation. pronunciation? Okay, okay. Um, Tell us a little bit more about like what was life like for you back in Canada growing up as a kid. You know like what did you do for fun? What was the landscape like? Uh but yeah, what was what was St. Marie like? I mean it's a very small town if
1: you tell I'm it's obviously in Canada as, as you mentioned. I, if I mentioned the Canadians that I'm from uh Canada, they'll say where from and they'll say St. Marie and half of them will say where is that? <laughs> um, they don't even know where it is. So, but uh, it's it's a small town. It's on the U.S. border. It's right where the three Great Lakes meet. Um, so, on one hand, it's a great city to grow up in because there was in, in nature abounding everywhere. You could be out on the lakes every weekend. You you know, camping was basically in your backyard. That's where camp was. Um, and so from, from the standpoint of being connected to, which is still important to me, being connected to nature and the earth and being able to sort of just walk into the forest, it was, uh, available at all times. On the other hand, it was a very small town and it was a steel mm-hmm. town. Um, so it was a one industry town, really. Um, there was a massive steel plant there. That's where most of the kids that I graduated from high school, that was their, in many cases, I don't necessarily aspiration, but it was
0: a very well-paying job. And so most of the kids that I grew up with graduated and went to the steel plant. Wow. Wow. And and now I remember reading that your parents also had pretty interesting jobs. Your dad was a uh, entomologist, which specializes in the study of insects. And your mom worked in the Department of Environment at Canada. And so I was thinking to myself, like, okay, you know, dad is in entomology, your mom is in uh, environmental work within Canada, here you are, major prominent investor in Los Angeles. And I was curious, like, you know, you could have done so many different things with your life, right? You could have, you know, gone down the path of environmental. You could have, you know, continued down being a VC or a professor, but like, uh, you've chosen this profession and you, you know, obviously are passionate about it. Where does that come from? Why do you like working with startups and entrepreneurs? And, you know, we'll get back to how you got there, but, but what's the why behind it? Why be a VC? I mean, first of all, uh, you know, life is
1: serendipitous, right? So Mm -hmm. I I didn't set out in Sault Ste. Marie saying, I want to be a VC. Um, and I think most, most people don't grow up knowing what they want to do. So it was a, it was a, series of doors that opened if you will that basically along the way and some you take and some you don't and okay oftentimes they're only open for a second and if you walk through it could change your life because it takes you into another city or it takes you down a different career path um and at any point in all of our collective lives we have those you know sort of moments in our lives where we have to say you know oh should i go down this road or should i not mm-hmm. go down this road right the um, the, the two paths taken in the wood. Right. Um, and so, um, from Sault Ste. Marie, it was definitely not a clear path to even end up in the United States. Um, so yes, my parents were both effectively when, and when I was a kid, we called it the bug lab. That's where my dad worked. <laughs> I used to say, I'm going to visit my dad in the bug lab. Um, which was by the way, a great thing as a kid, I was like the hit of show and tell. Cause I would bring totally you Know, I would bring tarantulas and things to school, um, when I was, uh, you know, with permission, not in my back pocket. Um, although that ended badly because we had a there was an episode with a Mexican giant flying cockroach that almost gave the librarian a heart attack <laughs> one day, and so we so we had to it's we, gone, <laughs> so we had to kill, uh, kill, kill the show and tell piece, but it was, it was a great. Uh, thing to grow up around and then i uh in terms of why be a vc so if you you're i guess you're skipping forward to present with yeah, that yeah question yeah, yeah. Um, so um why VC is basically it's connected sort of to my lifelong love of learning right mm. so um that's partly why i'm teaching and i've been teaching for you know for 25 years um and uh, it's why I mean I, I I grew up. My mother actually her first job before the Department of Environment was an English teacher, and so she I I grew up around someone who loved to read and who inculcated in me a love of reading. I was always I always had a book under my arm, you know, uh, wherever even when I was a young kid, teenager, and then older, and then through school. And I did a double major in English and international relations. Uh, again, we're both reading-driven sort of mm-hmm. things. And so I'm always interested in learning something new. There's a, a guy who had now passed away named Peter Drecker, um, who was a professor at Claremont College. He wrote several books. Uh, and uh, he talked about one thing, which was every several years, he would pick one new field and try to become an expert in it. Mm. Um, and that's what sort of kept him you know, sort of – Alive and uh, and vibrant through the you know through the tail end of his life and also in the in the middle part of his life and he was a journalist and amongst other things, and journalism sort of also teaches you that kind of constant learning path right, and so I've tried to do that so during COVID I picked up cooking so now I'm like I went from like zero cooking to now cooking like and. You know, five nights a week and experimenting with cooking, and so VC is basically you know, you're constantly learning new fields, right? You're, totally. There's with
0: very there. passionate people that are almost yeah, the professors yeah, in it, right?
1: right? Blockchain comes up or something else comes up, and there are incredibly passionate people on the other side of the table who are, as you say, sort of experts in that field. In many cases, in some cases, they're neophytes, but mm-hmm. they're learning as much as you are. Um, One of the things that I don't remember who said this, but a quote that applied to my life as a teacher is, if you're not learning more from your students um, than you're teaching them, then you're a really lousy professor. Um, And so – As a VC, you're constantly learning from your entrepreneurs, right? Because they're teaching you their industry and they're teaching you the dynamic of scaling and growing businesses. And you're trying to also teach back, right, at the same time and lend them the wisdom of your experience, which hopefully is useful to them along the way.
0: You know, I could imagine that like you in one day have someone come in talking about Web3 or blockchain, another coming in talking about fintech. And so you're able to learn these new subjects in real time very quickly, but also, um, you know, decide like what's for you and what's not for you and kind of discard what, you know, you don't want and and lean more into those that you do. Um, going back to college, now bringing us back to the beginning here, what was going through your mind at the time? Like knowing that your friends had almost this like clear path, did, was there something deep inside of you that's like, I don't want to do that or I want to, do something different? Like what was kind of going through your head at yeah, the time? Yeah, I just
1: knew I didn't want to work in the steel plant. <laughs> I just knew that that wasn't my future, yeah. right? Uh, it was not something that I yearned to do. Um, and I was the first kid in my family to go to college. So it wasn't as if I was you know following the path of m- my siblings. I don't even remember why I picked certain schools. Canada is very different than the US. Uh-huh. There, there are a bunch of very large schools, uh, which have you know, 50,000, 60,000 students, which is unusual when you think of Canada being much smaller than the U.S., but the educational institutions there, there's really only ten that matter, kind of thing. Ten, okay, ten very large schools, um, and generally most Canadians apply to a bunch of them because it's not that many. And then you sort of ended up, you end up where you end up. Sometimes, obviously, it's gravitated towards what you're studying. Yep, I had no clue what I wanted really uh, to study, so when I went off to school. I was just trying to pick the most generalized education as I could.
0: Okay. Uh, and when you were in college, was there ever a time or a moment where you're like, "Huh, like this internet or like this technology or this business, like no. what?" No. So, <laughs> what, what what was college like for you?
1: Halfway through college, I decided, or at the beginning, I thought I wanted to go to law school. Okay, I had friends that were in law school, older kids um, who I knew, and I thought that's you know English history, good background to go in and study law. Um, So that was my initial path. Um, Then towards the end of my path, sort of towards like year four, I thought I wanted to study either be international journalism, like a foreign correspondent, which combined the IR a bit with the English, with the writing. Um, Then I was really interested in pure IR. So I thought about going to do graduate work at say SICE, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced Mm -hmm. International Studies or Georgetown. And I minored while in, 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 in in international relations while at Western. As I mentioned, it was one of my majors. And so I was really thinking about the IR path. Mm -hmm. Technology really never came up when I was an undergrad that I can think of as being sort of like, oh, yeah, that's really what I want to do. Interesting. I only ended up in L.A. through serendipity, uh, basically. Well, it's like that first, remember I mentioned life is a series of doors? Yeah. (laughs) So my door, the first door was I was dating a girl, went to her house, her mother um, by the way, her father, after the the, the dinner, um, told his daughter that I was either going to be really successful or end up in prison. <laughs> um, so, fortunately, I didn't take the latter path. Uh, <laughs> uh, her mother, um, after the dinner, sent me a pamphlet for Annenberg. And she said, You should apply to this school. I'd never heard of it, hadn't had never even thought about a US school. I was thinking only about, you know, uh, Canadian graduate schools or law school for mm-hmm. business, et cetera. Um, and so I applied uh, in addition to, you know, I wrote, I wrote, I, because I didn't know what I want to do. I wrote the GMAT, the LSAT and the GREs sucker for punishment. Cause <laughs> I, cause I thought, well, I'm not sure if I want to, what I want to study. So I'm just going to sure. learn everything. I'm going to make sure I have all doors open. Uh, and then the only graduate school I applied to was Annenberg uh, because of her. Uh, and I got a scholarship. And so that's it. I told my parents I'm moving to Southern California and they were kind of like, all right. Um, they never even come. They never came. So parents the never,
0: entirety of you being there, the
1: entire time, I think my mother came when I graduated.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. And that, what that was, was it. what was your first impression of Los Angeles? And, you know, I guess similarly, was there any vibe around business tech VC or was it just like at that time you were so focused on school and like moving and your girlfriend, it was like,
1: I mean, obviously Annenberg had a very tech totally. Right. So there was, I mean, I was taking classes in that sort of were either central to, or core or tangential to the thesis of the class where some kind of, uh, there was the technology of communications. There was, you know, media related classes. A, it brought me to LA. So that was a, you know, one of those doors opening, right? It was a huge, huge migration from Sault Ste. Marie all the way to LA. I don't remember what my early impression of LA was, (laughs) um, to be honest. I mean, it was just enormous for a kid from the Sioux because totally Sault Ste. Marie is 60,000 people and LA is what? 9 million or something. Um, And uh, I, I mean, I remember I got a car, my first car, I spent 250 bucks on the car. Um, and the car got stolen six months after I bought it with everything I owned in it, because I was moving that day from one house. I, I rented rooms and houses. I was moving from one house to another house. I put all my suitcases, all my stuff that I owned, all my books, everything into the car right in the middle of broad daylight on Hoover. The car got stolen. Oh, my God. Uh, I honestly couldn't believe that it had gotten stolen. I was like walking around and around like I th- figured I'd just forgotten where I parked my car. It took me like two hours of walking around <laughs> by the school until I finally realized my car's gone and I was freaking out. Um and then I actually thought I was gonna just move and go back to Canada and, and just You're
0: like this is like, a bad omen on that. I'm out I'm, here.
1: <laughs> I'm at, well, A and I had nothing and my parents didn't I mean my father had passed away then, my mother didn't have a lot of money. Um, so I, I was literally wow. I was literally working in LA while in school to basically help pay for school. And so I thought, like, I'm just I'm done, like all my clothes, everything. And the dean of the school, Peter Clark, I still remember his name, uh, wrote me a personal check uh for two hundred and fifty dollars in his office when I told him the story. And he said, Stay in LA, stay in Annenberg, here's some money to go and buy some clothes. <laughs> um, wow. and um and then he's like we'll take care of the books like we'll make sure you have books for your classes and so that was kind of it that kind of like eased the like freak out oh my god i have to
0: leave wow um and how things I could have been different had he not written i mean that's that speaking of writing checks to people that first check might have been uh you know one of those doors you're talking about yeah yeah he yeah he definitely sort of laid the path for me staying in la when it comes to william morris like you were there at the company for almost 15 years and uh, I think a lot about that around in today's fast culture, where you know people are at the same job for a year or two years or four years. Like, what was it about William Morris that kept you there so long? And then, second follow up is, what do startups need to do in order to create environments where their teammates or employees want to stay that long? It's like, you know, getting fifteen years at the same company requires like. You to go through so many ups and downs. What was it about that company that made you stick it out? And what advice do you have for startups and how they can follow suit?
1: I think, A, it may be just to be about me. Maybe I have a hard time <laughs> leaving places. I don't know. Um, and I uh, maybe it's because of that sort of learning DNA There's there's a quote that I give out to my class every year. It's from uh, Merlin the Magician, (laughs) who's quoted in a book by T.H. White called The Once and Future King. I can't remember the entire quote. It's like six lines, but it begins with, the only thing to do when you're sad is to learn. That's the only thing that never fails. And then the quote keeps going. Um, And uh, I hand that out to my class because the idea is basically learning is a cure for a lot of that ails Mm. you, right? And so inside jobs... I always tell people that I'm mentoring, or people in, in or my students. Basically, if you're ever in a job where your learning curve goes, you know, from this down to this or this, it's either time to move within that organization or it's time to get out of that mm. organization. Because the only thing you should be doing on your career path, especially when you're younger, is a you know maintaining an incredibly steep learning curve. Right? Um, a it'll if your learning curve drops to a flat plane, that means you're probably not. Um, gaining any sort of career equity. um, And you're also probably not happy either because you're just doing the same thing over and over Mm -hmm. again. And you're not gaining sort of new knowledge that's going to help you excel either in that job or in your next. Um, And so the thing that probably kept me at those jobs, so four and a half years at Paul Kagan, I've really only had three jobs my entire life since I graduated from school. Paul Kagan, four and a half years, 15 years at William Morris, and then the combination of Graycroft um, and Amplify for the last 11 years. Um, And um All three, the characteristics of all three, were that there's an incredibly, a very large platform that, and the companies were run by people that enabled you to effectively be an entrepreneur. Mm. Um, So William Morris, I mean, people don't think of talent agents as entrepreneurs, but that's in effect what they are. Totally, they're building a book of business. The only way they get paid is if they generate revenue from their book of business. Um, And agents are run by basically people that are constantly thinking about like what's next and how to basically build their platform and add new businesses. And so I loved that part of the agency world. I ended up running, one, before I left, I was running a couple of divisions and I was on the board. Um, and the board was incredibly um, very strong advocates for, hey, if you come up with an idea, just run with it. So that's the reason why I stayed there. You know, I pitched them ideas. I would pitched, hey, what about creating a venture fund, um, which was I what I did at William Morris, which led me into venture. And they were like, go off and create a venture fund, you know. And so I approached Jim Breyer and that created the mailroom fund. And then the mailroom fund led to other things. Right. So it's all it's all about again, sort of if you're if you're asked the second part of your question was how do you build a culture? So if you to build a culture that has that kind of dynamic, then you want to enable people to be independent and you want to give them runway, right? And you want to make them feel like, hey, I can basically grow within this organization. I'm not being constrained by some kind of ceiling um, and artificially or otherwise. Um, And if I have great ideas, management wants to hear them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's, it's democratizing the culture, right? So which we do at Amplify as well, I hope, that everybody sits in our investment meetings. We don't have like a lot of the big venture funds up north, only the partners sit in the and you know in partner meetings, um, at partner meetings at Amplify, everybody sits in the meeting and and everyone's voice basically matters and everyone has a say in in the investment decisions, and there is no uh you know super majority, so it's not like myself or Oded can overrule everybody. We have an open discussion before we make decisions around investments, and everybody's voice basically is relevant to that discussion.
0: And and you think that part of the reason that you run those partner meetings the way you do is from your takeaways at William Morris, seeing how like ideas can come from different places and that if you allow more voices at the table, you can actually help the greater good. Is that kind of where you took that from?
1: I'm not sure it came from William Morris. I think it just came from a sense of that's the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, when it comes, I want to like stay on that question for a second because a lot of the teams that come in to amplify Uh, in particular, are really at the earlier stages, right? And so there may only be a couple teammates that make up the entire organization. And so if you're a founder of a really small team, maybe you only have three, four, five people on, and those people are working on, you know, breaking through that ceiling, uh, how do you maintain or how do you coach your founders to continue to leave room for their earlier team members to grow, right? Because like in the very beginning, everyone's kind of running trying to do as much as they can, and then you sort of hit these ceilings, what do you recommend to your founders to encourage them to, you know, continue to put more rope or more bandwidth so that their team can keep growing? Does that that make sense of the question at all? Uh, Yeah, I mean,
1: look, a lot of those decisions have to be made by the CEO. We can't, um, as as VCs, our job is not to manage the company, right? We can give advice. And when they come to us and say like, hey, I've got this problem, like I have a really talented person, I think they're going to leave, then I can sort of coach them through that well why are they leaving either yes give them more room to run or give them more you know have you know is there you know sort of limitations for what they can do inside Mm. the organization and do you feel like their skill set basically um extends beyond sort of where you're basically you know painting them into a box um but the nature of startups is is unusual in that um if you join a big company say a google or a Facebook or Snap or et cetera, you're usually being hired as a role player in a particular area, right? You're coming into marketing, you're coming into a certain discipline, and yes, there's room to sort of migrate within that role, but you don't see people moving from, you know, marketing to tech to product to sales. That's not the way things work, Totally, People are generally in one thing. But when you join a startup, you're often, especially very early stage, oftentimes, everybody's doing a little bit of everything. I mean, obviously the engineer is not running sales and the sales is not running engineering, but there are certain amount of the staff in the inside of an organization, which are basically crossover people and sort of picking up the pieces wherever they can. Right. Um, And then as the company grows, those individuals have to generally sort of narrow their focus in order to excel. Right. In order for the company to excel, people have, you have to have like people that are killer at certain areas And sometimes generalists um, do grow into a certain particular role or they elevate themselves into management so that they be in that position where they can still be generalists. Um, But sometimes generalists basically don't want to basically be narrowly uh, pegged into one area and so they don't scale. And so the CEO has to make a decision of like, okay, you're doing six things, but I really need you to do this thing because that's what you're best at. and I'll still enable you to have some room to grow around yeah, yeah. that particular area. Um, and oftentimes, people don't want to do that. And so, it's a dynamic that's not necessarily right or wrong. But sometimes you have to part ways with people early on because they aren't—they aren't really sort of the best person to scale with the organization as you migrate from that generalist sort of, uh, mindset to much more of a individual role player mindset.
0: When you were talking about how like the learning curve has to be like that. I look around at our team and it's like, I feel like we're at that pace where everyone is the learning curve, you know, Joel's doing audio and video and editing and this, and like, you're learning so much, but at a certain point, I know that I need to continue to create more room for them. And, and so I think to, you know, to hear you say it in that, you know, sometimes it's moving to management. Sometimes it's just putting more responsibility and sometimes it's, you know, moving positions or, or switching it up. Um, it's definitely, I think, helpful for, you know, at least for me to understand. So I, I appreciate that. Um, Paul, you mentioned in your classes when you're teaching that, you um, you said that there's really like two main takeaways for the students to really focus on. Uh, always question assumptions and be prepared to defend those assumptions and do the work.
1: Gee, where'd you get that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, we got we got our ways. Um, Paul, what does that mean to you? Like always question assumptions and be prepared to defend the assumptions. Like why is that piece so important to you and to startups and entrepreneurs in general?
1: And well, that is relevant to students because we often... Students often grow up in an environment in which they're given a text or given a lecture and they're meant to parrot back that lecture, right? Um, and education should be much more dynamic um, and much more iterative where basically it's a process by which you go through to learn something. That's where you really sort of retain information as well. It's not just parroting back or memorization of information, which oftentimes some some learning programs basically rely on that kind of memorization mm-hmm. and parroting back of, of data. But um, that that process is the one where you basically have to question assumptions, right? So you have to basically go in and say, well, wait, you've asked me to do it this way, or this person said this. Um, why? How, how can I determine whether that's correct or not? Let's look at the counterpoint. Let's somebody that said the opposite mm. and look at both sides of an argument and then try to figure out sort of where – I am going to basically set in terms of with my thesis or based on a prompt and an essay or something like that. Right. Um, And then be prepared to defend how you got to that conclusion. Right. So that's, that's the nature of that, which I said several years ago, but that's the nature of that as I recall it. But in terms of startups, now that you've, mentioned, and I hadn't really thought about it before, Mm -hmm. but it certainly applies to startups as well because you're constantly in that process of if you're building a consumer brand then, or if you're building an enterprise software company, it doesn't really matter, but you have to constantly look at what's come before you, right? So those who forget the lessons of the past are condemned to repeat them, right? Mm. So if you don't, know what's come before you then you're bound to basically repeat mistakes that have transpired in your industry before you and so you have to look at what happened what's where are the carcasses in the in the the landscape right what did they do right what did they do wrong Um, and then how can you learn from that and make adjustments into what you're building and that could be anything as simple as how do you adjust your marketing spend based upon a changing dynamic environment in which you know Companies like Google and, and Facebook have dramatically shifted from a programmatic standpoint the way you can buy and sell and and and, and buy media and, and buy keywords, et cetera. Um, or a much broader macro level in terms of, okay, I'm building a, a logistics startup. Mm-hmm. Um, how can I make adjustments in today's world based on what's happening at a regulatory level or what's happening at, um government policy, what's happening at a, at a, lands, at a broader landscape, bigger companies that might basically impinge on what I'm trying to do, smaller startups that are competitive. Um, and then how can I basically build something that fits into that landscape and has the chance to succeed? That's different enough, um, that it's has, that has a lane for success, right? And in order to come to those conclusions, you have to be constantly sort of questioning the sort of, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom, yes, it comes along the way and and painting your own path, right? I always tell people I don't make a lot of investments in media. And part of the reason for that is I grew up in media and I spent so many years in it that I see so much scar tissue mm-hmm. and all the things that can go wrong that it's really hard for me Um, To basically say like, oh, yeah, that could work even though everything is stacked against it. Mm -hmm. I always tell people if Netflix would have pitched me, I probably would have passed (laughs) because I would have said you're going to get sued out of existence, right? This will never like fly, right? And so sometimes it's great to be an entrepreneur and not have sort of all that baggage and scar tissue Uh where you can look at a new industry fresh, um, although you – and, and and still sort of being able to sort of like question authority and question assumptions and say, well, they they fail, but that doesn't mean we have to fail. Yeah, right? I always tell our team at Amplify, it doesn't matter if six companies have failed in an industry before it. Like if we see a pitch, the the um, the de facto response shouldn't be, oh, six companies already tried it and failed. It doesn't matter because it's all about timing in tech, and so things may have dramatically changed, and so why now may be relevant because the tech stack might have shifted consumer behavior patterns Mm -hmm. might have shifted something might have changed that now
0: enables that idea to work where it didn't historically work i i really love that and just to follow up on that second point do the work i mean it's obviously on the nose but what does do the work mean to you and why is that a message that you like to you know bring forth
1: my first real paying job and there was a there was a manager that worked for me. And I remember him saying, no one's ever going to outwork me. And I remember thinking like, that's such a strange thing to say. Um, but his, his philosophy was like, I, I, no one's going to outwork me unless I let them. Right. And so meaning that if Do the work means like if there's something that you're trying to get accomplished, don't do it Mm half-assed, right? Even on the most simplistic level, basically do the work. In other words, like figure out basically what you need to get done and do all of it and don't like stop halfway. Um, And a lot of startups fail because basically either there's a loss of enthusiasm uh, amongst the people around what they're building, uh, or they're just not doing that, making that extra effort in an environment where you, um, in today's world, there are six other people nipping at your heels, yeah. right? And so you have to, unfortunately, it's not it's not a, a, a job for the faint at heart, no. whether being in VC or entrepreneurs, which is much harder than being a VC, because you're 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 trying to basically succeed in an environment which is which is beyond hyper competitive and you're only living to get to your next <laughs> you know your next round of funding if you need to raise capital for your yeah. business um and in order to do that you basically have to put in a little bit extra
0: effort more than everybody else paul when you mentioned this a couple minutes ago you were referencing towards the end of your time at william morris introducing the concept of your fund the mailbox or the mailroom fund how did that come to be and what was sort of like the problem that you saw that you wanted to explore, uh, given the fact that you were still at William Morris, you know, what sort of did you see in the op- in the market and why did you start that fund? What, what, what was going through your head at the time?
1: I mean, I think in part it was what was happening in Los Angeles, right? So LA was really dramatically undercapitalized. There were, at that time, this is 2008, by the mm-hmm. way, from a timestamp standpoint. Um, So there were maybe five or six active venture funds in LA. I used to count them on one hand. And um, I was teaching at the time. And so I kept frequently hearing from students, oh, there's no money in LA. I can't raise money in LA. Those that were entrepreneurial in nature, I have to go up north to raise capital or what have you. Um, And so part of it was driven by that and uh, by the thesis that there was a vacuum in LA. And then part of it was driven by my job at William Morris was, um, in from a business development standpoint, to create new revenue streams, um, and it felt like a smart idea at the time to build a venture fund when other agencies were not our, – our job was to sort of be ahead of everybody else, right, yeah. and just constantly be pushing the envelope – Um, And so the idea of partnering with a venture fund to get the agency much more involved in tech so that we were more forward-thinking and to get us out of sort of the traditional media world and more of where media was going, which was media infused with technology, seemed like just inculcating that DNA into Mm -hmm. the agency, regardless of sort of the venture piece of it, just sort of connecting into technology, to venture capital,
0: to startups – um, was a smart idea for the agency as a whole. Did you feel at the time, like you were prepared or, you know, like going from being an agent or having no investments to then all of a sudden being responsible for like building a fund and investing in companies, did it all come very natural to you or did?
1: No, it was just like either stupidity or audacity or some (laughs) combination of the two, right? Uh, and I had a meeting with Jim Breyer, um, And uh, who was one of the early uh, leaders of Excel and pitched him the idea for this combination between William Morris um, and Excel and combining our media DNA and access to the higher echelons in the media world with his acumen and the firm's acumen in technology. And he thought it was a great idea. And we sat over lunch and penciled out the whole thing on a napkin, literally. um, And... And then we combine forces, and we each put in capital. Um, and he had this idea of, hey, why don't you bring in one of your big tech? William Morris had a consultancy practice, which I also ran. He said, why don't you bring in one of your tech clients as the third partner that can help inject marketing dollars into startups? Because that can often you know, change the tra- trajectory of a company if you can get them a big Fortune 500 contract early on in their, totally. in their gestation. And so I went to AT&T and got AT&T as the third partner in the fund. Um, and that was it. We had this big Wall Street Journal announcement. And no, I didn't know what I was doing at all. Wow. <clears throat> but I was not running the fund at the time, right? I was on the advisory board with Jim Breyer then we hired somebody who ultimately became one of my partners at Amplify Richard Wolpert who was a referral from Jim who said why don't we have Richard run the fund so he was the guy running the fund day to day and then I was sitting on the
0: advisory board got it and now at some point i believe it was like 2011 you eventually moved to Graycroft what was sort of the preceding moments leading up to that like why why did Graycroft even make its way into your you know into your story or your your journey well, as I mentioned, there were only a couple of active venture funds in LA.
1: Dana Settle was the LA, you know, uh, piece of Graycroft, which was a New York, New York, New York LA fund. But mm-hmm. most of the personnel were in New York. But at the time, they were on their first fund, which was a seventy-five million dollar fund. Wow. Dana was based in LA here. And we were the small little venture fund that was this William Morris, you know, entity mailroom fund. And they were just making the rounds, talking to everybody about who could they co-invest with when they were looking at deals in LA. So I remember having a meeting at William Morris with Dana and Alan Patrickoff and chatting about, you know, LA venture and startups. And then the very first investment we ever made, or maybe it was the second, uh, I think it was the second, actually. Uh, second investment we made was in a company called Symmetrics. Graycroft came in um, with okay. us in that syndicate in that round. Uh, and it was us and then the fund, uh Disney-based fund called Steamboat. It was called Steamboat at the time, which oh, was wow. a, which was a, a di- all Disney capital behind that fund. They were one of the few venture funds in LA. So the three of us did that deal. <clears throat> and then I joined the board along with Dana. Um and Bo from Steamboat, um, and all three of us were on the board for, I guess, three and a half years until the company sold to Amex. And so that's how the relationship with Graycroft started. Um, And then through our relationship that began with that board seat, Dana then was, I don't know, I guess, uh, marketing Graycroft as a place where I should go next. And so she was effectively recruiting, saying, hey, why don't you come on board as a venture partner over with us? And I think she wanted some help in the L.A. office because she was solo in L.A. She's at the living time. living on an island out here. Um, and uh, I finally said yes. And so I joined um, Joined up in, I think it was end of 2010. Yeah. Wow. Again, beginning of
0: 2011. What was sort of the, the bridge between Graycroft and what inevitably became Amplify? Was there a specific story or conversation or kind of thought that you had which was – that kind of drew you to want to start something new and, and really like own kind of the future of that fund.
1: There's a couple of things. So one, um, something had stuck in my craw, I guess, uh, that Jim Breyer from Excel had said a few years earlier at the mailroom fund, which was, he had made this sort of cavalier comment about uh, LA is never going to be a thing in venture. Um, and I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, all your best entrepreneurs come to Silicon Valley <clears throat> to raise capital. Um, and I think he was doing it in part to sort of like poke, jab, the yeah, a to, bit. yeah, to yeah, to get some action, right? Because he said all they come to Silicon Valley, end up in my office, and he said unless you have first check capital in L.A., you're never going to build build a sort of full fledged, robust tech ecosystem. So that had like stuck in my head for mm. the past couple of years. Um, and then, second things, I had started largely to learn when I um, was leaving William Morris, or in the process of leaving William Morris. And while I was at William Morris as well, actually, then two years before I left, I started making small angel investments. Okay, it was sort of like if I put a little bit money in these companies, I'll learn from them along the way. Um, and uh, so then. That led to a conversation at the time. Graycroft did not do very early stage investments. They were a series A fund. That's what what they had sold into LPs. And part of it was just naivete, right? I mean, I I didn't know venture very well at the time. And so I pitched um, Dana and Alan and Ian this idea of doing earlier stage investing. And they were like, we're not really going to do that. Um, But they were very... Um, they were just incredibly supportive and they said, you know, if you go, if you decide, we would rather you just stay here and work full time, you know, here or stayed here full time, but if you want to leave, um, then we'll be an LP check in your fund. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they reviewed the, the plan, everything, Dana spent a bunch of time on it, it was incredibly um, helpful and thoughtful along the way. And then we, um, and having them as that first check and oh, then Excel yeah. as the second check um
0: those two basically catalyzed amplify. You know, I've brought this up several times on the podcast. I I think a lot of people that don't grow up in the venture capital um just venture scene actually don't know how VCs get their funds and and it took me through several episodes to realize early on that VCs have to go out and raise money and raise funds from other LPs. What goes through your mind, maybe not as much today, but in those early years? you know, what went through your mind in raising a fund? Was it difficult? Was it scary? Was it hard? I probably wouldn't have done it if I would have known how hard it was going to be. Really? <laughs> really? What do people not realize or like, what, what do most people not understand about the process of raising early funds, fund one, fund two? It's the naivete and it's the what makes entrepreneurs great because they often can run through walls
1: because they don't really know what they don't know. And I didn't know what I didn't know at the time. Um, I didn't even know – I don't think when I started Amplify, I don't even know what an LP was um, because amp, uh, the mailroom fund was basically William Morris money plus AT&T plus, totally. plus Excel. I never had to do a th- damn thing. I didn't have to go out with my hat in hand and raise capital. The money was just there from three entities, right? It was almost like a family office. Um, and so when we started Amplify, I don't think it was like, oh, this is going to be really hard and we're going to have to go raise capital. We're going to have to do this and that. It was just sort of like let's – you know, myself and Odette were kind of the initial catalyst, and we were just like, let's just do it. Let's set up the entity, and then we'll figure out the rest <laughs> later, right? And we kind of just – we kind of literally just went out with the, the – the initial thing was the PowerPoint and the deck. We didn't even really think about who do we raise money from and who are the likely LPs. And then we just went to friends and family
0: after Excel and Greycroft came in. What advice, if any, do you have for, you know, new VCs that are in the process right now of raising their fund? Any learnings that, you know, they could take away from your experiences?
1: (laughs) Don't do what I did. Yeah. I mean, I I would – A, obviously, the smart move was to get people that knew us well, like – I mean, like uh, Graycroft and Mm -hmm. Excel to come in as anchor tenants because they were – couldn't be better capital than having two funds put capital in A as credibility because I had worked with both funds, and then B just to have their DNA and and advice and help along the way. Um, <clears throat> but if I was to start all over again, and if I was to or advise someone else if they were starting all over, I would say. I would suggest going to a lot more institutional uh, capital than we went out. Obviously, it all depends on how much money you're raising, right? Mm. We were starting an accelerator, and so we didn't need a lot of capital, and there were a lot – to be honest, there were not a lot of institutions that would have come in with a fund that was that small. Yeah. So really our only recourse was to go through individuals or small family offices that were writing smaller checks. So it, the question that you asked, it really depends on what size of fund that was For sure. raising. I think in today's world, if you were say raising a 50, 75, $60 million million dollar first time fund, then you want to build a base of institutional LPs it. who will then follow you throughout you know your process i think a lot of funds that start off and they have you know 100 lps in their very first fund and it's a smattering of individuals it's really hard because those people tend not to recur as lps high net worth individuals have different things that come up in their lives they Buy a second home. They move from L.A. and they're no longer interested, or they change jobs, or whatever it is. Um, having the dependability of an institution—be it a family office, or a fund of funds, or an endowment, or um, what have you—is a better base to build a long-term firm and you know a firm that has going to have longevity to it. But it worked out just fine
0: for us. So yeah, it sure whatever. did. Um, at the very beginning of Amplify, I researched that um, you guys were really focused on five main sectors: gaming, mobile, social commerce, disruptive media, and ad tech. Um, has that changed at all <laughs> over the last ten years? Dramatically. Dramatically, yeah. Can you can you talk to us a little bit more about like you know what the landscape is now and and what are sort of the industries or types of companies you're most excited about today?
1: Venture in any given market and in any given moment in time is constantly in flux. Totally. And so when we started Amplify, A, LA was known and had dominant players in those respective categories. Yep. We had big companies like Rubicon and AdTech, and we Ryan. had big companies in gaming. We had big companies in, in media, right? Big and uh, disruptive media. Um, and certainly because LA is a port, big in e-commerce, right? And brands were... Uh, littering the landscape honest company and companies like that and so it made sense to cover the categories that were relevant in la and categories that were still being um, basically invested in in later stage venture dollars because mm-hmm. whenever you're launching a fund based on whatever stage you're in you have to think about are people down the, the Downstream. Food, down the food stream you know, down the food chain going to want to invest in this mm-hmm. category and so the reason we've shifted is f- for two reasons so one la has changed as a market. Um, so LA has now become much more democratized around a lot of different industries. Which yeah. at the time, you know, you could not have found a cybersecurity company back in 2011 in LA, or even a lot of enterprise SaaS back in 2011. Yeah. And then, secondly, tailwinds have shifted or headwinds have mm-hmm. shifted um, around categories. Um, so ad tech was heavily in favor back in 2010 and 11, and then it became dramatically out of favor. And so we stopped investing in that as a category, right? So you have to sort of look at the downstream investment uh, status and see what's happening. Um, And as mentioned, certain categories crop up, like blockchain or AI or certain things that basically didn't really have investment dollars being thrown at them at the time. And then also you have to look, now we have the luxury of having a track record and seeing what we've had success in as a firm. It would not make sense if we had like three strikes in a certain category and to continue make investments in an area which we haven't done well in. Totally. And so we've looked at historically our track record. Where have we had success? Well, we've so you know we sold three enterprise SaaS companies to Microsoft, Google, and Apple in Fund One. So we're like, hey, we should stick to some enterprise SaaS investing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would make more sense. Um, we've had a lot of success in and around e-commerce, both on DTC, but also on the on the enablement side of e-commerce, so we've expanded that. Shout out Tapcart. Tapcart, exactly, is on the enablement (laughs) side, so that is one that sort of, Tapcart was really the company that was the catalyst for pushing us into sort of that B2B side of e-commerce, and Thankful is another one, Mm -hmm. and now we've made several investments in the last two funds, Candid, Wholesale, um, and other companies that are in that same vein, reactive streaming, all around sort of the future of commerce, Uh, but not companies that are creating brands necessarily, and then we've done well in fintech for several years, and so we're continuing to make investments there. And then the uh, the last area there that is relevant, at least to this fund, currently Fund 5, is logistics and supply chain, um, which is relatively new for us. So clutter could be used as an early example mm-hmm. of that back mm-hmm. in Fund 2. Um, it's not really a pure logistics uh, startup per se, um, but it is involved... In that, in that general thesis. And so we started seeing things largely based on what's happening with the global supply chain. We felt that there was an opportunity there. And so we've made, I think, three of our investments in this fund.
0: So three of the nine that we've made are in and around logistics and supply chain. So Paul, you spoke about how when you were working at Graycroft, they tried to position themselves as more of like a series A uh, investment fund. Whereas, um, you guys are at that like first check you're so early and when you have data to back up your investment decisions like at series A you know you can actually dig into that data point but in your position you're meeting a lot of founders that are so early on in their journey what are you looking for in those founders
1: it's changed right so when we started off um we were an accelerator right so we were investing in pre-product PowerPoints basically, right? So teams oftentimes had an idea and nothing more. Maybe they had a wireframe or some early sort of, you know, some product built, um, but nothing close to an MVP in most cases. And so in that iteration of Amplify, we were, no question, it was purely a people bet, right? Mm. So we we were just looking at, you know, team dynamic. Did they have a track record? of any kind, not necessarily in that same industry, but where do they come from? Um, Did the team work together before, which is always a sort of a key portion of the dynamic? Now, that is harder to do at an accelerator stage because oftentimes people have only been together for a matter of months. Totally. Um, So it was really in that incarnation, it was one where we were sort of just trying to understand more about, okay, what's the size of the TAM that they're going into? Is it large enough to make a venture bet? And then B, you know, do we believe that this team can execute on the vision that they're talking about? And do they have the skill sets to build what they're basically positing to us, right? Do they have any kind of background that would lead us to believe that they can be successful in building this? And do we think, based on the TAM, that there's an opportunity there? And sometimes you make a decision that, like, we love the team, but we hate the TAM, Mm. right? And we would tell those companies, come back to us when you have a different idea, because, you know, we just aren't excited about, you know, you selling succulents door to door. (laughs) Um, And we don't think that that's a big market. Um, Whereas the flip side was often the case as well, where we would say, God, this is like the TAM on this business is massive, but this team is just not going to be able to execute on it. And we would kind of just put those aside and say, let's look for other companies that are tackling this space. Interesting, okay. So it's one or the other. And then as Amplify migrated, which we didn't really talk about, but about 2018, we shifted to being just an institutional pre-seed fund. So yeah, we, so pre-seed
0: we, with benefits, right, is, is, uh, is the tagline I yes
1: <laughs> That shifted a little bit because now we had track record to look at usually at a prior startup, but oftentimes they were coming from a bigger company as well. And so you had more to work with uh, and you oftentimes had a much more um, robust team dynamic because it was no longer just one or two people. We were often investing in an accelerator days there were like one, two or three people on a team. That was probably max was three. Um, And now we're oftentimes looking at teams or now we are often looking at teams that are six, seven people. And so you can look at, um, you know how do they work together currently? Did they work together before mm-hmm. they came to pit, You know before they before they came to this startup? Did they have a history of working together? Um, which is one of our
0: main pattern recognitions. You want to see people that have a prior existing relationship. You said that twice now. I'm curious, like what what signals to you? Like why is that continuity important to you? You're basically getting married for several years. You know, seven to ten
1: or longer, right? And so knowing that you can work well with somebody, um, particularly when you're marrying different and disparate fields like product and tech and, and mm. sales DNA, et cetera, trying to mash those together with people that aren't necessarily copacetic from a philosophy standpoint and haven't worked together before and one may you know have a different way of going about things. Um, early on, let's put it this way, we saw the opposite. Like we we learned from our mistakes basically, right? So some of the key failures that we had in early funds were, were people that sort of joined together to form a startup but had never worked together before. And then there were fireworks. Got right. it. Several of our startups ended up having we ended up, you know, basically being more of a therapist than a venture capitalist, which is part of the the job, um, because there was serious, basically, internal dissent about how to take the company and where to take the company. Now that can often get resolved very quickly and lead to sort of a partnership that lasts forever, uh, for years. But oftentimes, it ends up in a in a tragic sort of breakup. Just like a relationship,
0: right? Which is a time suck on like all parties. Which is a time
1: suck and it takes the company off path and it, you know, takes capital and it messes up the cap
0: table because you've got, you know, so. You have to report back to LPs. It's just like a whole, a whole. So we
1: often found just like one of the fixes for that is to know not the entire team doesn't all have to have come from the same company Mm -hmm. together, but having a couple people on the team that are core that have worked together and you can see and feel the dynamic mm. of them basically being able to finish each other's sentences and where they both feel like, yeah, this is where we're going. And we both have the same vision about where we're taking this company. It's just something that we think it's, it's not like if they don't have it, we're not, we're not going to invest ever.
0: Um, it's a signal. It's like,
1: a, it's one signal that yeah. we like, like in a perfect world, if we had a team, they'd worked together before it's come, they're going after a huge tam. They've got some initial traction, um, And um, they have experience in a domain where they all have experience before. That is like straight down the middle, right? Simple. Makes our job easier when we see things like that. It doesn't mean we're not going to, you know, not go paint outside the lines. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have invested in pre-product companies. We have invested in people that necessarily haven't, not have like a several year working relationship with each other. Because um, certain
0: things overcome that decision-making process, where we get excited about it for another reason. Absolutely. And as far as the red flags, so to speak, um, you know, are there any traits like if you're looking at two companies and both look like they've got a great TAM and both look like they have the right dynamics, but one you just there's something off about it. Are there any sort of red flags that you look for? Questions that you ask to try to.
1: I don't think it's any one thing. I mean, uh-huh. To me, one of the things that I've learned in venture is to do a better job of trusting my gut, mm. which is you know, kind of that indecipherables kind of thing. where yep. You can't really put a, oh, it's this or it's that. But I look back at my 40 angel investments and the ones that have gone awry. Are almost in every single case, ones where I had a feeling like, I really shouldn't make this investment. But something like, oh, somebody, I knew three other people on the cap mm-hmm. table who were saying, we love this entrepreneur, you should do it. But something was bugging me about it. I didn't really know what it was, but I was just like, oh, okay, you know, I'll write the check kind of thing. Um, and so with Amplify, we, you know, we all try to trust our collective guts on things mm-hmm. like there's just something not right about this one thing. And we try to dig into it with yeah. diligence and try to uncover that. So we're not just making a, a bet based on some kind of random feeling. But I would say if we had that scenario with two things and almost exactly equal, the team we liked as well, the tan we liked as well and diligence checked out equally well on every, on all points on both on the tech, et cetera. Then it has to come down to like, who do I really believe mm-hmm. in my heart, basically, and my stomach and my gut mm-hmm. gonna, is really going to execute on this vision. And it's not an easy task. And we're wrong as, you know, as many times as we're right. So we often we're always going back and trying to revisit. When we have made mistakes, okay, what can we learn from that process? Why did we go wrong on that investment? And if we had that investment come in today, would we still make it? Or do we have sort of things in place that would help us
0: sort of steer ourselves back onto the right path and not make that investment? Paul, uh, getting towards the uh, the end of our questions here. Um- tell me a little bit more about the makeup of the founders that you want to be a part of this new upcoming Amplify class. Like who's the right fit for Amplify? If I'm a founder or in a startup right now, and I know that we're going to raise our first check or or one of our earliest checks, who's the right fit for Amplify from your perspective?
1: The first thing would be, you
0: know, at relevant
1: category, right? So we are, Probably about 90% at this point, B2B, Okay, um, in terms of our focus. So we are not going to make investments in, say, the next killer app for um, meditation or what have you, um, just because it's not something that is in our current remit for this fund. Okay, We've, we've done a lot of consumer in the past. We've just <clears throat> discovered over the last few years that it's become much harder for, con- for consumer companies and for brands to basically sort of rise above the... the the clutter, as it were, and we don't believe that we're the best fund necessarily to help them do that. There are great funds in LA that are incredible at you know, at consumer. There's Willow Growth and BAM and M13 and companies that really sort of have great DNA in and around consumer, and we just don't think we're the right mm-hmm. ones. We have a lot of track record in and around sort of B2B sauce and software and logistics and some of the areas that we talked about earlier, um, and so. In those categories, if you familiarize ourselves with the more recent investments that we have made, I would say that would be sort of the you know the first tell. Um, and then, secondly, I mean, it's hard to say like, oh, it has to be this kind of entrepreneur. We we kind of believe that we have a very sort of eclectic mix of people mm-hmm. that we have backed. It's not like an academic thing. It's like, oh, we want you to have gone to Stanford or some particular school. Um, It's much more about sort of the idea, the passion that you have around it. And we want there to be some kind of personal connection. So we have a company called Safe Ride, for instance, that was founded by an ex EMT who was frustrated about the fact that uh, there were uh, rides, transportation, medical transportation that was not getting patients to their dialysis appointment or their chemo appointment. And he was frustrated about why is this system so not set up and why can't it not be tech enabled to make this worked faster and more efficiently. So A, the patient gets the help they need, the clinic gets the patient, the insurance company gets paid, right? And the whole system works more efficiently across the board. That was the company that we backed and they just closed the series B because that EMT, you know, then partnered with his brother, as it happens, who had sort of that business tech mindset to say, oh, I know that we can build a software solution to fix this problem. So those are the kind of things we get passionate about is when we see people over brimming with basically passion around a problem that they're excited about solving, um, and then helping them do that into the best of our ability and using our network and our resources and our skill sets and pattern recognition and the relationships we build over time.
0: Uh, Paul, you're a legend, man. Thank you for the time and everything here. I really appreciate you. We always finish the conversation uh, with two questions. So I'll, I'll ask the first one. If there's anyone in your life that um, has been incredibly impactful, um, they, for whatever reason, they just are someone that has been a shining star that uh, you just want to give some love to on this episode. Uh, has there been anyone? person, parent, family member, anyone that you can think of that, uh, you know, deserves a little special love from you today? I mean, the first would be my wife because we've been married for
1: 22 years and we were living together for five years before that. And so she's seen all my incarnations and, um, you know, foibles along the way and been supportive. I remember when I was leaving William Morris or on the cusp of leaving William Morris, I got a call from from Jim Breyer, um, Unfortunately, Richard Wolpert had had a tragedy in his personal life and mm. had to leave running the Mailroom Fund. And this was at the same time, it was about several months after the merger between William Morris and Endeavor. And so there was chaos happening inside the agency world. And Jim Breyer called and said, hey, we can you come and run the Mailroom Fund, even on an interim basis, because you're the only person that really knows the investments we've made and where the bodies are buried and that kind of thing. <laughs> and um, I was like, you know, I'm going to leave the agency and like my – my huge salary to go and like do this venture thing i don't know and i called my wife who was visiting a friend of hers at denver in the time and she literally said to me why are you calling me and i was like what do you mean why am i calling you you're my wife like what do you mean she's like the answer is so obvious she's like you've been you know you've been thinking about and talking about technology for so long you're excited about venture um and she's like you know you've been at William mars for 15 years you've been complaining about the dysfunction around the merger and everything else and the personality conflicts. I mean, just like hang up the phone and go do what you already know you should do. Right. So that's what you need a good partner for it. It's like, help you like, <laughs> get, you know, get in touch with your, own, <laughs> your yeah. own, your own core tissue. And so, um, she's been that guiding light along oh, yeah. the way.
0: I love that. Um, all right, Paul, last question, what are you most excited about this year? You can be family, what you're learning and cooking, passion, business, anything. What's most exciting to you right now? We're,
1: you're, we're on the cusp of closing this fund, right? So this will be our first real institutional pre-seed fund. because our last fund. We were kind of in transition from being an accelerator into being a pre-seed fund. And this will be our first all-in. We're a pre-seed fund writing larger checks than we ever had before. And I'm excited about the next incarnation of that as we move in and build our team. We just hired a new team member starts with us July 1st. And um, I love the group that we've got assembled. Connor and Katie, uh, uh, you know, already on the team have been with us for several years. And then we just added a woman, Olivia, who starts in, a, in literally less than a month. And then, you know, Oded, my partner, you know, since the inception of the fund. And then we have two venture partners, Tom McInerney, who's a legend as an angel investor here in LA. Um, and then we added one of our own portfolio CEOs, Josh Payne, who was the founder of Stack Commerce, which he sold to TPG last year and then moved to Nashville. And now he's just joined us uh, in January of this year, joined us as a venture partner. So it's like a, a new incarnation from where we started. A new chapter a new for new cha- Amplify. It's a new
0: chapter for Amplify, which is exciting. Wow. Uh, Paul, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate Uh, you've been in this game for a long time. So it's cool to have you in the office here.
1: Really appreciate it. Awesome. All right, guys.
0: Uh, I'm Sean Goldfaden from Coefficient Labs. This is Demo Day. Peace.